welcome to another episode of Retailistic. We are so honored to be joined today by Sean Nelson, who I was recently in one of his stores on the Upper East Side called Love Sack. And so we're going to hear all about today this amazing company, how it was founded, and their founder. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. So take a big giant step back in terms of when you kind of came up with this idea around Love Sack. What was it that you, was there a pain point in your life? Was there something that you were trying to solve for others? What was the inspiration? Look, I was just an 18-year-old kid on my parents' couch watching The Price is Right, I think. And I had this dumb idea to make a giant beanbag that would like fill the floor, like from me to the TV. And being rather impulsive and weird, I got off the couch Drove down to Joanne Fabrics, bought whatever vinyl, because that's what you make beanbags out of, right? They had on sale. Uh-huh. Uh, brought it home, cut it out into two figure eights, began trying to sew it up on my mom's sewing machine, jammed it. My my girlfriend's mom finished sewing the first sack on my behalf, put a zipper in it so we could stuff it. Took like three weeks of chopping up old blankets and camping mattresses because you know i tried to buy beanbag beads but like come on like i would have depleted like the national supply (laughs) and as it turns out that foam made it all squishy like a giant pillow you sink into it i mean it's just totally different than a it it isn't a beanbag and as it turns out uh it became a love sack three years later when my neighbors who had seen me drive up and down the street with this thing taking it camping taking it everywhere in the back of a truck convinced me to make them one for their kids for you know Christmas. And I needed a name for, the, for a company. So this is now 1998. Made that first one in 95, 98. Uh, founded the company, Love, Peace, Hate, War, Hippie, Beanbag, something like that. Love Bag, Love Sack. Oh, that's cool. Registered the name in Utah. That's where I live, Salt Lake City, for 25 bucks to uh, oh, no register way. the name locally. And I had a business. And uh, it was a side hustle in college for a few years before... We got a huge order at a trade show, built a factory to support it, then opened our own store because no one else would sell our stuff. And now, you know, I don't know, 25 years in, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. We have, you know, 250 locations, uh, been the fastest growing furniture retailer in the United States many times, named that. We're, you know, approaching a billion in sales over the next few years, probably and um, continue to grow very rapidly and sell mostly couches these days. Really cool couches called sectionals that can be with you the rest of your life because of how they're designed. So very sustainable. Yeah, with lots in between there. But that's the that's the bookends of the story. So tell us what it was like when the pandemic hit. And right, we were all spending a lot more time at home. And depending where you were geographically, it might have been like a lot more time. Can you talk about what happened to the business? Where were you seeing orders? How were you fulfilling? Right, you said you have your own factory. So that certainly is kind of different than many other furniture makers. Can you dive deep there? Yeah, you know, so the pandemic, as many people know, was very good for the home category. We did not know that going in. Going in, it was terrifying. We very quickly came to the conclusion that we were going to have to close all at the time of like our 150 locations, whatever it was. And 80% of our sales 
are through those locations. Even today, it's 70% of our sales happen at retail for us. Now, 100% of our sales roughly have interacted with our website. But when people are spending two, three, four, five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 on a couch, they most of the time want to sit on it one time. They want to see it in person. That's where the showrooms come in. So for us to close, let's call it 70% of our business overnight, we were prepared for death. I mean, we didn't, you know, we, we were batting down the hatches, cutting costs, you know, two, three weeks of just like, uh, I won't say panic, but we were, we were moving very quickly to right size the business and prepare for the worst, go completely online. We we're going to um, have to lay off all of our part-time associates, but kept on all of our full-time managers let them work from home trying to sell couches from their iPads or what have you over Facebook. And it worked. It worked not just in part because we scrambled and did a good job preparing, but as it turns out, and who could have predicted, now it seems obvious, with everyone staying at home, contemplating the condition of their couch, it was really good for the couch business. Our business exploded. We, we had been growing at you know, around 40% top line growth for a long time. I'm talking many years. And all of a sudden we were growing at 50 and 60%, which compounded on top of many years of that, that kind of growth, phenomenal numbers, all online, um, aided with the you know hands-on help of our full-time associates still working from their homes, doing it over video, doing demos over video, et cetera. On the other side of that, when things started opening up again, we opened up the showrooms, the sales all shifted back there. And to this day, we're still doing about 70% of our sales in showrooms. Uh, but again, they're all digitally led sales as we see it. Um, but those showrooms have been very powerful for us. What did you learn from that experience? There's a lot to be learned from that pandemic experience, to say the least. I think first, keep a steady head, keep a steady hand. We truly believed it might spell the end of our business going into something as cataclysmic as shutting down the 70% nozzle of our revenue. And it wasn't. And thankfully, we had a lot of cool heads. Our board of directors was cool. I mean, we're a public company. There's a lot at stake. We have, you know, at the time, almost a thousand employees. Um, uh, there's, the, the stakes are very high. But everyone, everyone stayed cool, was kind. I mean, that's, you know, a chapter in my book that's coming out soon. Let me save you 25 years is the title of the book, you know where I share some of these lessons that I've learned over this very, you know, hopefully you don't have to, it doesn't take you 25 years to, to do something great. Like it did um, love sack necessarily, but uh, stay cool and be kind. I think number one, number two, hire experts. You know, I mean, that's something that had to be done in a, prophylactically. Like we needed, we needed the experts when we needed them, right? It wasn't the time to go find them. Thankfully I had a great team in place that could deal with a situation of that gravity and, and deal and get through it with grace, uh, leveraging their expertise and leveraging their background. You know, like I've been through quite a number of setbacks of the worst kind and a number of, you know, exciting portals and moments of the greatest kind. I want a million dollars on TV with Richard Branson on a reality TV show. So both ends of the spectrum, but these kinds of wild events really, uh, hopefully, you know, train you to keep a level head when it's good, when it's bad or ugly. And I think uh, having a team that also is well-seasoned, you know, there's a lot of 
young teams that are, you know, I think, and look, I, 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 I've been that 20 year old, 18 year old entrepreneur before, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but thankfully I've always sought out people. I'll say it crassly older than me, wiser than me, more tenured than me with a lot of expertise. But I've also sought out people that are really tried and tested people that have been through the crap, people that have had bad things happen. You know, um, sometimes I think we, we shy away from people whose resumes aren't squeaky, squeaky clean or whose backgrounds aren't nothing but successes. I can tell you firsthand, you learn way more from crisis and from downturns and from bad things happening than you do from the smooth times. And so I seek that out. And thankfully, we had that in abundance at LoveSack. And thankfully, we performed very well. And and it's not just owed to the condition of the markets only. It's also the execution of the team. And I have them to thank for that. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, so first, start with the winning a million dollars, because you may be the first person I've ever talked to you who's ever won anything of that size, and especially with Richard Branson. Yeah. So uh, if you look deep enough into my history, I was recruited to be on a reality TV show in 2005 with Richard Branson. He it was kind of his answer to The Apprentice at the time, Donald Trump's, you know, TV show. And he just did it one time and and instead of having apprentices vying for the big prize, we didn't know what the prize was at the time. He had entrepreneurs on his show as it turns out vying to become president of Virgin Worldwide, which I was for a time when I won and a million dollars, which at that time was the biggest prize in reality TV history. And it was an investment into the company. It wasn't like I won a million bucks and, you know, bought a house or whatever. But, uh, and at the time when I, when I won this love sack was, I think 2 million in debt, having built all these stores and, you know, gone through our early grow too fast days and stuff like that. So you can't believe everything you see on TV at face value, right? Like, don't get me wrong. It was a fantastic event. But I was under a lot of pressure, and and um, and thankfully, it it, the, it you know it came out the right way. But yeah, I was uh, I, you know competed across eleven episodes. People were eliminated, left on the tarmac, or you know from it's crazy from England to Africa to Asia, Hong Kong, Japan, back to back to London, back to Miami, back to his island, Necker Island, in the. Caribbean, where uh, the finalists were myself and Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. And um, believe it or not, we joke, you know, I, I won the show, she won in real life. But um, uh, she's a great friend, and, and we continue to be friends. And Branson continues to be a mentor and a friend and was an investor for a long time as we navigated our business through venture capital, private equity, eventually now public markets. We've been through it all. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't won that million dollars and you had that kind of debt load? Where do you think you'd be today? Well, I don't know that it would have been so different. And here's what I mean by that. I, I don't look fate in the face for a second. I am nothing but grateful for that opportunity and that crazy turn of fate. But shortly thereafter, we raised money through venture capital and their first move was to bankrupt my company take it through a full chapter 11 reorg, start over, purge the system of all of our bad leases, uh, poor performing franchisees at the time, buy back, get out of the franchise business, start over, relocate my company from Utah to Connecticut, just outside of New York City, 
where I lived for 10 years. All four of my children were born in Fairfield County as we rebuilt the business brick by brick, dollar by dollar through venture capital, made it healthy enough for private equity, uh, pivoted again around 2015-16 to a direct consumer model focused on sectionals, which we'd invented a long time before then, but it took us a long time to marry that product with a business model that really made it explode and then take the company public in 2018. And so I think either way, LoveSack probably would have had to go through that very embarrassing, made more embarrassing because I just won a million bucks on TV. I was Richard Branson's golden boy. And now I'm filing for chapter 11. I mean, talk about humiliating. The worst of the worst. But this is what I'm saying. When you've been through crap like that and you've not just had it happen, but navigated through it. We had to run the company. What a lot of people don't understand about a reorg is you have to run the company while it's under this crazy reorganization process, lawyers, attorneys, outside management, all kinds of things involved. And you're still putting on a smile, going in every day and selling stuff. As I'm going over overnight, this is in the book, let me save you 25 years, where I talk about closing down stores I had just opened. I'm sawing cash wraps in half at midnight to get out of these uh, locations, we have to be out, you know, the next day, whatever, you know, we're in breach of the lease at this point, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's physically, mentally, emotionally exhausting. And meanwhile, the other locations have to keep selling, put a smile on their face, you know, tell customers we're going to still be around, buy a couch that can be with you the rest of your life. I mean, talk about stress. But those are the, those are the, and then, you know, six months, a year later, we emerge from, from that. And the story is the story and we've grown and become everything we are. I don't hide from it because that's what's made us stronger for it as a business, me as an individual, my team, um, and frankly, our story. So it's been a wild ride. How did you, right, when Bed Bath Beyond announced that they were closing stores Right there, the consumer gets very anxious, right? Because if they buy something, maybe the store isn't there that they can return it. They worry about customer service. How did you message and how did you not only kind of message from inside, but outside as well? First of all, let me share an anecdote. My wife was trying to buy sheets from Bed Bath and Beyond like yesterday. You know, I'm trying to explain to her they're not there anymore. I think it's been their third time around, you know, going through that. My point is though, People, it's amazing. The American consumer is the most resilient animal and people will buy sheets, buy couches. You know, at the end of the day, if you're in business, there's business to be had. It's amazing how resilient it can be. Now, is it bad for the brand? Sure. Is it tough to navigate through? Sure. Do comms matter? How you present, you know, what you're, how you're explaining it to your own people to then explain it to your customers, whatever you, you know, put out in the media website. The answer is you navigate the best you can, but you keep putting on your shoes and going to work and, and turning up the music and having a good time, even under duress, even under duress, you have to put on a great face and uh, try and give the customer what they want. And yeah, it makes it harder. Does it make it harder to sell someone again, a couch, with a, a lifetime guarantee when they're wondering if you're even going to be around in a few years, if you're going to be around in a few months, let alone a few years, of course it does. That's a terrifying prospect, but believe it or not, there were sales to be made and our revenue continued. And that's the way that we were able to exit uh, that reorganization successfully 
and become who we are today. A publicly traded company on NASDAQ many years later, thriving, doing well, growing post-COVID when the whole category is down like 20%. LoveSat continues to put up the strongest growth in our entire category. I'm proud of that, but it's because of the resiliency that's been built in. And so how do you, how do you communicate that the best you can? You, you get the best people around you, best PR advice, best comms advice, and you just go to work and do the next thing. What do you attribute your growth kind of post-pandemic? Because this is a category that's really struggled and we see, you know, we're in the middle of the second quarter earnings season, right? We, we see it continuing to, just, to struggle. What's what's the magic that's LoveSack, and how do your employees embody that and communicate that? Yeah, I mean, look, there are a number of strategic and tactical uh, methods that we are actively employing to be very good at what we do. You know, in the way that we advertise, the way we present our value prop, the way we present the product, both online, digitally, uh, traditional media, TV ads in showroom. It's all one big concert, ultimately trying to convince people that this is the best couch that they could possibly buy. And it is. It is the only couch you could have the rest of your life. Not just because it was built to do it, because that's half of the designed for life. That's our philosophy. That's half of the designed for life ethos, built to last a lifetime. But because it's a couch system that was designed to evolve. You can wash the covers, change the covers, one piece at a time, swap in, swap out, upgrade. As we launch things like Stealth Tech, our surround sound tech system seamlessly embedded in the couch. I set my phone on the arm of the couch I'm sitting in right now. It's charging wirelessly, invisibly. That's a cool invention. It's reverse compatible with the stuff we've made seven years ago, 15 years ago. I have sectionals in this home that are 15 years old, married with brand new sectionals, mated with Stealth Tech. They're on the, probably their 10th set of covers. I'd have to peel off the covers and show you to see any difference. There's quite a big difference in the construction, but the overall, my point is this is a whole philosophy. So why are we doing so well? Because we have the best product in the marketplace, because we've invested years and years in designing it and refining it. And because we've got, I think, some of the strongest marketing in the marketplace. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about advertising, I'm talking about the whole package. Online, offline, digital, retail, all married. What's interesting about LoveSack is that, you know, I, I was doing another interview with a DTC expert recently. And I've, you know, I have a lot of opinions about that. We put on the DTC clothes to take this company public so investors could understand what we were doing. But what's funny about it, you know, many years later since our IPO, and we've been very successful since the IPO, I think LoveSack is probably the most or maybe top three DTC companies on the planet. Why? Because not only are we growing rapidly, which is of course one measure of success, uh, we're profitable, we're making money. I'm not sure there are any others in that entire subcategory that are making money. There's like one that I can think of, like one. And I'm not trying to be a snob. What's my point? My point is, Ironically, we're also one of the only DTC companies, if you want to think of us that way at all, that has zero wholesale. Like our partnerships at Best Buy and Costco, that's our shops inside of their shops. It's our people. It's our environment. It's our checkout system. We are 100% direct to the consumer. I have the data of everyone that's ever bought sectionals so I can build a relationship with them. What's my point? My point is 
it's not any one thing. It's a whole business model that I'm very proud of that's taken us a long time to cook up and to orchestrate and to refine every bit of it from retail to digital marketing, customer acquisition, relationship building, and, and all the way back, of course, to the product, which is no accident. And so I, you know, I wish I had one answer for you, but in our case, I think our success is rooted in all of those things. That's super helpful and interesting. Can you talk a little bit about your R&D process? Yeah. Um, we're very secretive about what we do in R&D, uh, specifically because we don't do a lot of things. Like most of the brands- I, I was kind of with, feeling that, which is why I was like, I've got to ask because it was it's, it's like been nagging me. And so I, I appreciate well, you at least, whatever I'll, you can share. I'll, I'll give you a little color on the process that the, what we're working on, we're secretive because most of the companies we compete with are merchant-led organizations. And that's not a criticism. They move very fast and it's new season, new collection, you know, uh, rugs, lamps, bowls, baskets, end tables, you know, bathroom, kitchen, living room. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Meanwhile, Love Sack, we're still selling couches and giant not beanbags. And now our couches have stealth tech, which is pretty cool which is a raw invention. There is nothing like Stealth Tech. We invented it. We patented it. All of the things that we do that are major are patented. We're proud of that. We're inventors. So what's our R&D process? It's invention. It's very different than those that we compete with that are merchandising their way to more SKUs. You know, and essentially what that is, is a constant test and learn activity. You know, like make a bunch of stuff, throw it at the wall, see what sticks, whatever sticks will keep around for a while. The other stuff will drop, we'll move on. And it creates a ton of waste in uh, not only management, you know, with all of the SKUs in and out, with all the products that need to be discontinued, even thrown away, discarded, who knows what, cleared out, clearance sale. We, we never have a clearance sale because our stuff is permanent. So if we're going to launch something, it better be really good. They Basically, we don't launch anything that we don't think we can be selling for the next 10 years. We never drop a fabric, right? If it comes off of our everyday collection that you can buy and have shipped to you in just a few days, which is like 90% of our sales, but you know, the years go by and this colorway is you know, no longer popular, we'll just move it to our custom order program. Why? So that when you come back in seven years later, you're like, look, I know it's a long shot, but I bought this couch and it's still really great and it hasn't faded that much. I just need one piece. My dog chewed the corner of it. First, we might advise you just to rotate the piece around because you could hide it. You don't need to buy a new cover, but hey, isn't it cool that not only can you buy one cover of one piece and you have a brand new couch again from Lovesack, but we still have that fabric in stock and it's no longer... In, in stock, ready to go. It's on our custom order program, but we haven't dropped it for this purpose. That is a designed for life business model. It is way more than just an R&D philosophy. Again, things that are built to last a lifetime, designed to evolve. It's a whole way of doing business that results in sustain hyphen ability. Stuff that can actually sustain. No one's talking about that. Everyone's making stuff out of plastic water bottles, which is great. We do that too. We probably recycle more plastic right now into fabric than any company in the United States of America into home deck fabric because couches are huge. And I sell more of this couch than any couch in the United States of America. Again, remember like 80% of our, 90% of our sales are sectionals. If you include stealth tech um, and we're up, you know, Last year, we did 650 million in sales, mostly of that product. So you're talking about millions and millions of yards made of plastic water bottles. What's my point? You probably didn't even know that about LoveSat because we barely advertise it because we don't even really care. We, we care that we do it. 
but we know that customers don't really care about sustainability. They say they do, but they don't. They want, they just need a couch. It's going to deal with their kids, fit through their hallway, down the staircase. Now we'll still be super sustainable, but not only will we recycle a bunch of bottles and we'll tell you about it and that's cool and make you feel good. But more importantly, we're giving you a product that was built to last a lifetime, designed to evolve. So if you want to, you can have this couch the rest of your life. That's sustain hyphen ability. And it requires a whole business model married to it to support it. And that's the reason that I think Love Sack is so unique in the landscape and performing, again, so well, putting up huge growth while the whole category is negative. I mean, it's, it's lower growth than we had during COVID, admittedly, but it's, but it's still, still pretty decent. Yeah. Like I said, recent earnings season, uh, home's been a tough business. What percentage of your sales are outside the U.S.? Zero. We don't do any business outside the U.S. yet. Which actually leads to my next question. So very interestingly, we've seen retailers who, who think the way that you do about selling their IP into markets, let's just say they'll never compete in. And it's become an entire line of business for them. You know, as you talk about stealth tech, I, I really like how you've built the company, how you've thought about the longevity of the product. And I like the, you know, sustain hyphen ability that I think that really resonates with people. Would you ever think, I'm sure you have thought about it, how you might do that? And if so, would that ever end up being kind of another growth vehicle for you? Um, yeah. So I just want to clarify, do you, do you mean IP in terms of our trademarks and are we talking about proper franchise or it's kind of brand license you, agreements? Which, which are you referring to? What you do that you would not tell me if we didn't have an NDA. Yeah. Um, look, I think, let, look, we're an open-minded business. Nothing is, you know, whether it we're acquisitions or international expansion or all kinds of different ways that we could grow the company, we're open-minded to. But we're also a very, very focused business as demonstrated by our very limited product line. We still like sell mostly two things. And there will be more. There's a lot more coming through this design for life lens actively being worked on. But what's my point? My point is, I think, first of all, a lot of companies go international way too soon because it's, I don't know, it sounds cool to be in Dubai or something. It sounds cool to be in the UK or something. Or, or, you know, it's just another way to grow, which I'm not trying to be critical of. What I'm saying is, though, I think the American consumer is still by far the biggest economic engine on the planet. Just It just is. And we know this. And uh, I think that while, you know, we, we could look at things like you're describing, it's not likely. And the reason it's not likely is because one thing that's, I think, underestimated about Lovesack, this is not a company that I started so I could, you know, make a bunch of money and then like exit and then maybe go do the next thing. I mean, it, it, I didn't even mean for this to become a company as I described in our story, but it's, it's obviously come a long way since those days. My, what's my point? We've evolved to a place where we're very proud of this design for life philosophy, the way we're coming at business. Our, our opportunity is massive. We think that we could be inside the entire home, especially where home meets technology. Nobody's doing that like we're doing it and doing it at scale. And so Ultimately, we're building a brand that I think will be a mega brand, a brand that will be here for another 25 years. We've already gone 25 and a brand that will be across the globe. But we will be patient to get there because we have plenty of growth 
ahead of us. We have plenty of growth, you know, in real time right now, and uh, plenty of of ways we can expand our product lines, etc. So that's, you know, that's kind of how we think about focus. We're open minded. If, if if there was an opportunity to make a great business move that really made sense, but our ambition is to build a brand that's here for fifty. And it's not just to make a bunch of money, you know, tomorrow. Oh, which I think really resonates. All right. Some housekeeping mall or off mall. How do you think about real estate? And is it, how much is technology a part of that? How much is that kind of a human component? Where does all that kind of come to play? You know, we have of our 250 locations, a love sack proper, you know, showrooms roughly. Um, most of them are in malls and it's because that's where we got started. We got very good at that. I don't think there are many more proper shopping malls that we desire to be in just based on, you know, the quality of those centers. We're opening a lot. the, the, The bulk of the locations we're opening today are off mall. They're pad sites. They're in power centers, you know, they're street locations, you know, high street, all, all, all the above. And we're having tremendous success um, in those categories, but that's the order we've gone. And I think it was a good order for us to go in. I don't know if it works for every business, but certainly that landscape's evolving. Um, one thing that we've been vocal about is we will continue to grow plenty of locations, but ultimately we're not, you know, we don't, we don't think of ourselves as a retail chain. We think of ourselves as a brand trying to sell stuff. And as, as I've articulated there, uh, most of our, customer's journey begins online. You know, they hear about it from a friend, they see an ad, who knows what, they pull it up on their phone, they start researching, and eventually they find their way to one of our showrooms that needs to be at least convenient enough. You know, it doesn't need to be on every corner for a category like this. They're about to spend two, three, four, five, ten thousand $10,000. They'll make that drive as long as it's reasonable, but we still have hundreds to go because it's not that reasonable um, in many of our locations. So lots to do on that front. Yep. As I shared with you, when I was on my way home from the gym, I stopped by a love sack on the Upper East Side recently. And what really, as somebody who's walked probably more stores than 99.9% of uh, people in the world, was the, not only kind of the accessibility of the store, how easy it was for me to understand what was being sold, the product, the value prop, but then the enthusiasm of the people in the store, not only, it wasn't just the salespeople, it was also the customers. Cool. And I will tell you, there was something kind of magic. I, I was, I recently was in a chocolate shop that was giving away free chocolate and it was about that same level, except right for these customers, they felt like they were discovering a product that was going to impact their lives and that they, you know, this is going to be kind of a long-term decision. So in some ways it right, also took some stress away from them, which, you know, I, I just asked them how they, and someone said they were just like, like you said, they, they were just walking by cool. and they were like, and so I, I think there's something really unique here that it goes back to a, a brand, a lifestyle, kind of, you know, greater ambitions. I mean, we, we can see all that, which, which then leads me to how do you approach marketing? And, you know, we talked about this idea, right? You can market the, the brand, you can market the, the attributes. I mean, there, there are different ways to think about it. You also have to market internally, right, to your employees. How do you think about that? Because I just, I get the feeling you think about that very differently than many others. I, I, I hope so. It's a marketing, listen, we spend um, tens of millions, over a hundred million dollars 
you know, coming, coming up on marketing. And so it's not a small piece of the pie for us, right? It's a big deal. It drives our business. It is the engine. Um, and uh, there are endless tactics, you know, from inf influencer marketing to TV advertising to, you know, everything digital, every platform, I could go on and on. I think that from a brand, from a overall philosophy standpoint, we are definite because our ambition is to build a brand, as I described, one that is associated with sustain hyphen ability, not sustainability like greenness only. I mean, that, that too, but more stuff that can actually sustain. And it's, I think that's a unique, pretty unique in the marketplace. We are moving our messaging more toward the emotional side of things, because as we know from, you know, Steve Jobs back in the day to, uh, you know, the best firms, it's really an emotional game to build a brand. Now, if you want to hawk sofas, if you want to sell a lot of stuff, um, you can take the MyPillow approach. You can, you know, so somewhere between the purely performative performance-based marketing all the way over to the esoteric, you know, uh, I don't know, philosophy, philosophy kind of messaging. There's a place where Lovesack has thrived and where we try and blend the two as best we can. We have probably leaned, honestly, speaking candidly, too far in the features and benefits um, execution when it comes to, let's call it advertising, not just marketing, but advertising, because it's worked. It has sold a ton of couches and it's been really successful, but we try to do it, I hope, in a classy way. We, you know, we don't have ever advertise promotions and sales, things like that. Like on, on, let's take our TV ads as an example. But we blend traditional media with digital media. From a creative standpoint, we're, we're moving toward the more emotional because, again, our ambition is not just to sell a bunch of stuff and do it profitably but also to build a brand that's here to stay. And the only way that we're going to achieve that is by taking it to the brand messaging, which will be wrapped more tightly around this design for life ethos that I talked about, the idea of buying stuff for life um, and building a whole lifestyle around that way of behaving, let alone the new products that we'll bring out that will pay off all of this uh, philosophy. Yeah. Much of your philosophy, actually, is we work with many luxury companies. It's really, I mean, just what you just said, it just, it really is very similar, right? Because there's no promotions, no clearance, right? You're a brand for life. You know, I don't know if necessarily people are, are heading down from one generation to the other, but people do look at it as an investment. Yeah. It, it is really fascinating because in the minute you start to talk about, and I, and I also like, right, I mean, you're not kind of com comparing yourselves to others per se. But if you think about kind of when, when people buy mattresses, right, they, they expect a certain kind of experience for couches or furniture. And, and this is very unique. And it's not only about relationship building. And the minute you talked about features and attributes, I mean, you know, when you're buying a luxury product, you want to know the features and attributes because this is something you're going to have a long time, right? Yeah. It's a really interesting without even, and, and maybe it was more intentional than not, but I mean, you've almost, you've really built a luxury company. That's exactly right. And it's, and it's deceiving because our name is Love Sack and we start with giant bean bags and people, you know, bean bags sound cheap. Ours are more than a thousand bucks. Most of the celebrities in Hollywood, NFL players, MLB, NBA, they have our products in their homes. 
you know, and those that are and those homes that are, let's say, too good, let's call it that, for a love sack sofa next to their couch, were in their basement where their kids hang out and eat pizza and play Xbox and watch, you know, really hang out, watch movies. And we'll take the basement because that'll be a five, 10, 15, $20,000 sale. And that's fantastic. And, and, you know, you, you make sales like that out of the 800 square foot location that only employs like five people total. And that's a really sharp business model. And so, you know, it's been a very powerful look. And I, I'm not trying to claim any genius for it. We've evolved into all of this, but it's become now very intentional. We are absolutely intentional about what we're doing. And, and, you, and I love that you picked up on that because most people, I think LoveSack is tragically underestimated because of like our weird uh, come up because we weren't just a, you know, I don't know, private equity darling that raised a billion dollars and burned through it. If I had lost more money, I'd, you know, we'd probably be worth four times what we're worth right now on wall street. Weird. Or if I were losing money more rapidly, you know, but it doesn't matter in the end, you know, it, it will all, the value will, will shine through, but we, it is a weird kind of luxury brand because it's very down to earth. We're about, Babies, kids, pets, dogs, real life spills, furniture that could be with you the rest of the Now you look at our price tag, it's like, whoa, this couch is going to cost me 12 grand. That's not exactly cheap. You know, we're more expensive than most of our competitors. You know, we're, 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 we're only below the most luxury that people kind of think of when they think of more luxury furniture. But our stuff's really kind of meat and potatoes down to earth. And that's okay. That's, so I don't know what we are, but we're pretty successful doing what we do in the way that we do it. And we're just at the end of the day, it's a democratizing product. We sell to middle America because it's a couch and, and, and we're getting compared in those cases, maybe to Ikea, maybe to, you know, couches that might cost a, a fraction of what ours do, but they choose ours because they can come to the conclusion that it's an investment. If, you know, this is something that really could be with me the rest of my life based on, you know, everything I've told you about the product they come to that conclusion. They make that investment. Now, on the other end, we sell to very, very high-end clientele because, by the way, they're still human beings. And they're disappointed with their last couch that cost them even more and fell apart like a year or two later. It looked like crap. Just started looking schlubby. Sectionals, you could replace one cushion of one piece and the thing looks brand new again. But you can. If I challenge you, I barely met you, right? But if I don't know what couch you have. You have a couch in your life. Everyone does. And if I challenge you to get one back pillow or a cushion for it, because your big fat dog is always sitting in the same corner and it's kind of destroyed one. Could you? Where did you get it? Where did you buy it? What's the brand? What model is it? Do they still carry it? With sectionals, that's a click away. It's funny you brought the dog who like projectile vomited all over our couch. And uh, we, we brought somebody in and they're like, yeah, this actually really can't be Oh my gosh. See, <laughs> we've literally been doing, I can't even believe you said that because we've literally been doing exactly that. And it's if you had sectionals, I know. you know, the worst, the worst case is like, look, let's just start over new covers across, right? Or by the way, just the two or three that the projectiles made it to, but you can <laughs> let alone, by the way, you could have just thrown it in the washing machine in real time and it would have been <sighs> perfect. And so once you, here's the thing, once you live with our stuff, it ruins you. Not just because like, uh, man, like I didn't expect the projectile thing, but it happened and it washed up great. Okay. So now you're a customer for life. Well, what else can I get from you? I would love it if the other stuff in my life didn't disintegrate right in front of me and make me replace it every year or two. 
that sounds pretty cool. That is our brand. Things that are built to last a lifetime and can evolve with you as your life changes, your taste change, your aesthetic change. We just launched the angled side, which now gives a whole new aesthetic to sectionals, gives it a whole new profile and opens the aperture. You know, if if people didn't like sectionals before because it just wasn't their style, too blocky, too modern, whatever it was. Well, we might get them with the angled side. And the best part is, even if they bought their couches, you know, seven years ago and succumbed, they didn't even like the profile. They bought it because it was projectile vomit proof. Well, now they can have a different profile if they want. It's all reverse compatible. And eventually we're going to trade them in for you. We're going to come to your house and do it for you if you want. We'll recover them for you or you can do it yourself. You can opt in, opt out, subscribe, uh, upgrade. I mean, all these services are coming and services will be a big realm for us. So, you know, we, and look, again, all of this has evolved over time as we've embraced these unique attributes of the product and slowly married the marketing, as you said, the branding to suit. And so, yeah, we're building some weird quasi luxury, but down to earth brand that I believe will be here for another 25 and maybe even 25 beyond that. I'm insanely proud of that. Having started this as a side hustle in college that I contemplated, you know, shuttering a hundred times along the way. Now that, that just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it there and just, I'm going to, I usually kind of like run through a few key points that I picked up. So this idea around design for life, I've, I've never heard anyone talk about sustain hyphenability. I love it. This idea that you're building this mega brand and you know, that the, the Richard Branson story and, and kind of the impact that had and you know, what you learned from that. And, and you talked about people as being key. And what I really liked, it wasn't going out and necessarily going to every Ivy League school and, and kind of paying the highest ticket. It was this idea around scrappy people, which has always actually been a philosophy of mine. And then, you know, messaging to the emotional side. And, you know, this kind of, I really think if we, we build a course, we have this idea of an hourglass, right, with kind of luxury all the way down to kind of hard discounters. And I would kind of put the brand as like accessible luxury, right? Because you talk yeah. about, you know, there's, but, but I actually think that that's very important because from you know a Wall Street perspective, there's, that's, that is a pretty thin area. And in kind of good times and bad, consumers always want to aspire to more. And mm-hmm. so I think you have a really long runway. What you've built in 25 years is truly amazing. And I, I want to wish you the best of luck. And thanks for joining us today. This is truly amazing. Thanks for having me. It's great. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing where it goes from here. I can't wait. All right, everyone, we're going to have a, a link to learn more about Love Sack. And please like, subscribe on your podcast channel of choice. I look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks so much. <laughs>